turn in our Bibles this morning, first of all, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as we're going to be looking at some different scriptures today. We've been studying through the book of Revelation uh, recently, and uh, as we know, the book of Revelation deals with end-time events. There are a few things uh, that we, can, we associate with end-time events that aren't necessarily covered in depth in the book of Revelation. Some of those events, some of those doctrines actually come from elsewhere, such as Matthew chapter 24, where uh, Jesus gave what's known as his great uh, Mount Olivet Discourse, where he talked about end times, and it goes on for the entirety of that chapter. There are some other places, particularly in the Old Testament, where end times are talked about. Uh, and we kind of bring those together with the book of Revelation and, and get a more complete picture of the way things will unfold. But there are other things that are associated with end times, uh, such as the rapture of the church uh, that comes from a variety of scriptures. We are naturally curious about how things will happen in the end. We read the book of Revelation, we try to understand it, and it can be difficult at places. Hopefully we learn something from it and we get some insight as to what is going to happen, how it's going to happen. But we are curious about those things like what and when and how and uh, why and all of those things. Certainly related to end time studies is though the rapture of the church. The doctrine of the rapture teaches that believers will be taken out of this world in an instant. Some hold to this being before the tribulation begins. Some hold that it, it is at some midpoint uh, during the tribulation, maybe the halfway point that it will occur. Some say that it's at the end of the tribulation. Some have even developed what is called a pre-wrath rapture of the church. Uh, there was a book written uh, 10 or 12, 15 years ago uh, titled The Pre-wrath Rapture of the Church. And this guy's, the author's belief was that uh, before the bowls of wrath were poured out, that's when the rapture would take place. The word rapture, though, means simply catching away, or snatching away, or grabbing away. I believe, though, that a pre-tribulation rapture of the church fits best with all of Scripture. Uh, and we're going to look at this today. It, it's not as easy to pinpoint as it is some things in Scripture. You have to go to a variety of places uh, to see this, and you also have to look a lot at the past and how God has worked in the past uh, to come to that determination. The word rapture itself does not appear anywhere in the Bible. If you're looking for it and you're trying to look it up in your concordance and see all the places that the Bible talks about the rapture, you're going to have trouble finding it uh, by looking for that particular word. It's just not in there. Uh, it is described as a catching away or a snatching away, uh, but not uh, as the word rapture itself. We're going to look at some passages today. The scriptural concept of the rapture offers to believers both comfort 
and assurance. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, we read, as Paul seeks to comfort, comfort the church at Thessalonica, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let us pray. Father, as we look this morning at this doctrine of the rapture of the church and some other scriptures uh, that support that and teach us about that, we pray, Father, that our hearts and our minds would be attentive to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Two groups will be a part of the rapture according to this passage that I read. First of all, those who are alive and remain. And secondly, those who have died, those who have fallen asleep, as what Paul calls it here. Now, the Apostle Paul genuinely believed that this would all take place in his lifetime. As he wrote these words to the Thessalonians, I think there was very little doubt, if any, in his mind that he would actually see these things take place. I don't think he had any concept of God's ultimate timetable, uh, how long this would take, and that 2,000 years we would be reading these words later, and that uh, the Lord still would not have returned, and the church would have not yet been raptured out of this world. But at the same time, Paul was content to rest in and trust the Lord. And so what it wasn't in his lifetime, that did not diminish Paul's trust of the Lord, and it does not diminish the truth that he wrote to comfort the church at Thessalonica. In fact, the very purpose that he wrote these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is given there in verse 18. He says, Therefore, because of the need for comfort, he says, Comfort one another with these words. The words that he gave were not meant to be scary. They were not meant to threaten. They were not meant to cause an upheaval of any kind. But they were meant to comfort. And so in that sense, there is even further indication that we don't have anything to dread when we face end times. When we think about the judgment of God, when we think about the end of time, it can be kind of scary to us. It can be scary to a lot of people. But he says here, and he writes, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36 says, But of that day and of that hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So when is this all going to happen? 
We have no idea. Only God knows, according to what he wrote, and what Matthew wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit in 2436. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor even the Son, but the Father alone. Some things are reserved for God alone, and this is one of those things. In verses 16 and 17, Paul gives a step-by-step description, though, of the event. He says, first of all, the Lord Himself will return for His church. The Lord's not going to send an angel. The Lord's not going to send an emissary. But instead, He's going to return Himself. The Lord Himself will return for His church. Secondly, Jesus said that He will descend from heaven. Christ will descend from heaven where He has been since the ascension that is recorded in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Thirdly, when Jesus comes down from heaven, He will do so with a shout. In other words, a command. This will be a commanding event, and His, and his presence will be commanding. Fourth, the voice of the archangel will sound. Well, it's widely believed that this is Michael the archangel. But we really don't know that for sure. In likelihood, it very well may be. Fifth, the archangel's voice will be added to the sounding of the trumpet of God. Sixth, the dead in Christ will rise first. Finally, those believers who are alive and remain at that time will be caught up together with the dead saints in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And he says, so shall we ever, forever be with the Lord. And then he encourages, comfort one another with these words. The idea of being caught up, or the phrase caught up, refers to a strong and violent act. Being caught up isn't just kind of gently scooping something up. It isn't just sticking your hand in water and gently uh, taking a little bit of it out uh, as your hand is cupped. It isn't just gently picking something up or taking something. It's No, it's it, the idea of it is violently grabbing something. The same word is used a few places in Scripture, a couple of them that are noteworthy. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12 is one of them where there's a description there of taking of the kingdom by force. A taking of the kingdom by force. A violent act, a violent overthrow. In John chapter 10 and verse 12 it describes a wolf snatching away sheep. A wolf doesn't gently uh, take sheep. A wolf snatches them away, grabs them, takes them violently. And so the idea of rapture, as we see it here, and as as the particular word that Paul uses as he writes, is that of a violent act of grabbing or taking or snatching believers away from this world. The time of the rapture can't be discerned from this passage alone. There's nothing in this 
passage here in Thessalonians that tells us when this is going to be. We're just told that it is going to be, and we're given a little bit of insight uh, as far as how it will all uh, look when it does happen. But it doesn't tell us when it's going to be. So it is best to conclude that the rapture is separate from judgment. And I think this is an interesting thing here. The time of the rapture can't be discerned, but when we read along, read it alongside other rapture texts that are given, and compared to, and compared to judgment texts, it becomes clear that, that two things, the two things are always kept separate. A lot of people want to kind of merge together judgment and the rapture of the church. But we'll notice that when Paul talks about it in Corinthians and when he talks about it in Thessalonians, and when John talks about it in the Gospel of John, and when it is discussed in the book of Revelation or alluded to in the book of Revelation, every single time it is apart from judgment. Judgment is not anywhere in the same chapter even. It's always separate which I think, again, is an indicator to us that uh, the rapture and any form or type of judgment are two different things at different times. Notice also, and this is our second point today, the assurance that believers have in Christ. The assurance that believers have in Christ. And we see this from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 54, and Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, Christ offers assurance to his disciples with these words. He tells them, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. That if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. The point here is to offer assurance. There's no talk of judgment here. There's no talk of the wrath of God here. There's no talk about tribulation here. It's only assurance. He comforts them by this phrase, Let not your heart be troubled. Don't worry your hearts. Nothing to worry about. You believe in God. You trust in God. Believe also in me, Christ is saying to them. In my Father's house, a more literal translation of mansions there is rooms. In God's house are many rooms. That God is specifically and carefully preparing for believers. God is looking out for us. God seeks to take care of us. And He says, if it weren't, so, if it were not true, I wouldn't have made up a story about it. I would have told, I, I'm committed to the truth, he's telling them. This is the truth, that God has many house, houses, or many rooms in his house. 
And there's no reason for your hearts to be anxious or worried or troubled. He said, I will come again, I'll receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you're going to be also. He didn't just say that one of these days you're going to die and be with me. No, he says, I'll come again and I will take you to be with me. Where I'm going, he says, you're going to be there with me. Where I go, you know, and the way to get there, you also know. The point here is to offer assurance. There's no talk again of judgment or wrath anywhere in this passage. Only assurance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 54, the apostle writes, also offering assurance, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. For those who fear death and those who fear the judgment and bad things in general, Paul offers assurance that there is not a thing that they need to worry about. If the sting of death, which he also talks about right there in that same passage, if the sting of death has been taken out, what is there now to fear? So many things that we fear are so many things that we don't like. The fear can be taken away by removing one small part. Think about a bee or a wasp. What are we afraid of? It's not their wings. It's not that they'll bite us. It's not that the, the sound of their buzzing around is going to hurt our ears and burst our eardrums. No, there's one thing that we fear. It's that stinger. And if they didn't have stingers, if they'd all been removed, we wouldn't be afraid, would we? There would be nothing to fear. Well, Paul is saying the sting of death has been removed. Nothing to be afraid of. He said, we're not all going to sleep. In other words, not everyone is going to ultimately die. But at the same time, we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in an instant, he is saying, at the time of the last trumpet, the trumpet's going to sound. Those who are dead will be raised incorruptible. In other words, even though someone has been dead for a long time, they'll be raised and they'll look like a living person. They won't look like a zombie. They won't look like a skeleton. They'll be raised incorruptible. We'll all be changed. For this corruptible, this corruption that is closely associated with sin and death will all be gone. He says this mortal must put on immortality. In other words, death 
is consistent with what happens to mere mortals. But that is going to give way to immortality. We shall be changed from mortals into immortals. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then she'll actually finally be brought to pass the saying. That is written, death is finally swallowed up in victory. For those who fear death, those who fear judgment and bad things in general, Paul offers assurance that there is not a single thing to worry about. If the sting of death has been taken away, are we then supposed to believe that one day there will be an unlucky generation, maybe even our generation, that will have to go through the horrors of the tribulation? The Bible paints a bleak picture of that period in this world. The tribulation, it says... A tribulation or pressure like the world has never seen before. If any generation down through history, including our own or maybe ones that might come after us, if anyone thought that they might have to live through what the Bible describes as the tribulation period, how could anyone keep from dreading that? And worrying about that. Well the answer is. Is that no one could. Because we're human beings. And God knows our nature. And he knows that we would worry about that. I believe. That passages like. First uh, Thessalonians. Chapter 4. John chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 15. Those kind of passages are written to give us assurance that God loves us enough that He's not going to allow us to suffer along with the sinful world that He is in process of destroying. That's exactly what the tribulation is, is a long process of God destroying this world and its system. In every generation... Instead of every generation longing and hoping to be among the generation that gets to be a part of the rapture, then each generation would live in fear of being the one who had to live through the great tribulation if these things were not true. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but He's given us a spirit of confidence and sound mind and hope. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, the Lord Jesus writes a letter to the church at Philadelphia. It's the sixth of the seven churches of Asia Minor that are addressed. Now, I told you as we looked at those churches, uh, some have, I think, mistakenly looked at those and said, well, each one of those represents an, an age in church history. And there are multiple problems with with taking that too far and looking at it that way. Because, for one, no one knows ultimately, other than God, when the church age is going to end. 
All of it would really fall apart if we knew that it was going to go on for another 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 years. Because always when it's understood that way, they always say, well, we're living in the Laodicean church age. Which you could look at it and say, well, that's a lukewarm church. Certainly we can see how that would describe our day and time in the church in this age. But I think the best way to look at each one of those seven churches is they, as a totality, represent the church age. The age that the church will be upon the earth, and you see uh, all of the problems that all of the churches had, and their characteristics of the church in any age. You can look around and you can see churches that are corrupt, churches that are compromising, churches that are lukewarm, churches that are being persecuted, churches that have lost their first love. That's not unique to one brief period of time of a few centuries, perhaps. And then we move on to a whole different issue or area. And I I go through that to say that because it's important to understand that before we actually consider something that the Lord said to the church at Philadelphia. In verse 10 of His address to the church at Philadelphia... He says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial or the hour of judgment, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now remember that the letter to the church at Philadelphia was a letter of great comfort to them. They were being persecuted. They were small. They perhaps felt insignificant. Times were tough for them. But the Lord gave them assurance. After these letters to the seven churches, the church is never again mentioned, per se, throughout the remainder of the book. It's almost like uh, they, they, well, they completely dominate chapters 2 and 3, and once that's over, then you don't really hear anything about the church anymore. Everything else is, is, it takes on a different focus. In chapter 4, it's the throne room of heaven. Well, in chapters uh, 4 and 5, the throne room of heaven. And then after that, other things start happening. Seals are broken. Wrath is delivered. And finally, you get to the end of the tribulation period. And you see heaven described the eternal state. But the church is talked about early on. And in one of the encouraging things, well, among the encouraging things the Lord says, is He says, you've kept my commands to persevere, and I will keep you from the hour of trial or judgment, which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Many see, in effect, that the end of the church age is at the end of chapter 3. Then the judgment of God begins unfolding in chapter 4. For those who believe the church will go through the tribulation, I would point out that Revelation chapter 19 is where the rapture would occur if you believed in a post-tribulation rapture, but there's no mention of anything like that happening there at all. The only indicators we have in Scripture... Among the verses that I read, plus the very um, uh, absence of the church is mentioned after chapter 3, 
gives strong indication that the church is already been taken to be with the Lord by that time. If this is true, and I believe that it is, and preachers, professors and all, authors that I trust the most tend to believe this as well, then it does give assurance instead of fear to us. Honestly, and I'm like you, if I thought I was going to have to live through the tribulation, and if you thought you were going to have to live through the tribulation, you would be overcome with great fear. And I would be overcome with great fear. And God doesn't want us to live that way. He wants us to have assurance in this world. God always has our best interest in mind. Over and over again, we're encouraged and we're assured in His Word. We can take comfort in knowing that He is going to protect us. Even in Revelation chapter 4, as John saw a vision of the throne room of heaven, one of the things that he observed there was a rainbow around the throne of God. Now, why on earth would there be a rainbow there? Well, we know that God destroyed the earth once before, back in the days of Noah in the book of Genesis. And the rainbow then became a sign, a sign given to Noah, the Noahic covenant, that he never again would destroy the earth with a flood. He didn't say he would never destroy the earth again. He just said, I won't do it with the flood. So it's significant that even as John saw an open door, as Revelation chapter 4 records, into the throne of heaven, one of the things he observed is there was a rainbow around the throne of God. If God cares that much that there's even a rainbow in His throne room as a constant symbol slash reminder of His covenant promise to Noah, that how much more is God going to keep, uh, or how much then is He going to keep all of His promises, the ones that were spared from the wrath of the flood, Noah and his family, were spared why? The Bible tells us why they were spared. It wasn't because they were good, it wasn't because they were better than other people, it said simply, they found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God determined to save a few souls from the wrath that was the flood, the destruction that was the flood. One of the best insights that we have in all of Scripture uh, when it comes to understanding the end of time and how things will happen and how God will destroy this world is to look back and see how He did it when He did it before. I told you at the very outset of our study of the book of Revelation that the most key thing in understanding this book is to understand what God said all throughout Scripture and to understand God's character on display all throughout the Bible. There are a lot of things that people have taken and they've speculated on, and that's where people run into problems in the book of Revelation. Is there's really no scriptural precedent for some of the things that some say. It just, well, this kind of sounds like this, and then they just jump off uh, into spe- endless speculation. But when we can tie it to something that God's already done, or something that God has already revealed, that makes a lot stronger case. 
And when we try as much as we can, try to understand God's pouring out of judgment at the end of time and destroying the earth, as the Bible says, by fire the second time, if we understand as much as we can about the flood and how God destroyed at that time, it will help us greatly. And we understand His grace and how that some were spared because why they found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The church age itself has often been described as the age of grace. And we're living in that. We're still living in that. Now, it might end this afternoon. The Lord may come back and the age of grace will be over. But right now, right this moment, we're living in the age of grace. But at some time, and maybe not the too distant, not too distant future, that will end. God led Noah and his family into the ark of safety. He sealed them in and then poured forth his wrath on an unbelieving, wicked world. Essentially, that is what he's going to do again. Although this time it will not be a flood, it's going to be fire. I ask you this morning, are you ready for the rapture of the church? Are you ready for that moment to come? There'll be, there won't be any getting ready for it. It'll just happen. If you're going to get ready for it, you need to do it right now. You need to be ready for that trumpet to sound. For all those things that, that Scripture describes, the trumpet of God will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And we're to comfort one another with these great words. Only those who know Jesus will be raptured out of this world and will meet the Lord. And that indeed could occur at any moment. I ask you this morning, are you ready? Let's pray together. Lord, as we bow our hearts before you this morning, we're so thankful that your grace is sufficient. And in many, many ways, you've shown to your church your care, your concern, your love. Down through history, even going back to the days of Noah, you've shown that. Even in the present, you show that. Even this past week in our own lives, you've shown that. Thank you, Father, that we can look at passages like what we've looked at today. And we can find hope and we can find assurance there. Knowing that you're not going to leave us here in this world. The day will come, the time will come, where you will rescue us before you pour out your wrath upon this world. Father, if there's anyone here today who is not prepared for that time that is coming and perhaps very, very soon, we pray that today they might get their heart and their life right with you by receiving you as their Lord and Savior. No one here may have another week. No one here may have another month. Maybe not even another day. We don't know what will happen. Your word says in James that our life is like a vapor. It's here for just a, a little while, just a moment, and then it dissipates. 
just like smoke or steam into the atmosphere. Lord, our lives are so short. Father, your word says to teach us to number our days. We pray that we would do that. And that we would know that the rapture of your church may happen at any moment. And we'll be called upon to leave this world. And we'll leave with the other saints. And so shall we ever be with you. And those who are not right with you will be left here. Father, we pray this morning, if anyone who doesn't know you, that they would receive you as their Savior. Maybe there are other needs for church membership, recommitment, just to come to the altar and to pray and to get our hearts right with you. Whatever the needs are, Father, we know that you can meet them this morning. And we pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.